day, God, to worship you. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we pray today that you will bless the preparation, the proclamation of this word. Let only those things come forth that you deem appropriate for your people today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to St. Mark. As Pastor Joe read verses 1 through 15, I want to just read verses 11 through 15 from the New King James Version. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews. So they cried out, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Today I want to continue on from this sermon of series entitled Journeying to the cross, journey into the cross. In today's scripture text, Mark records Pilate as the last stop for Jesus before his crucifixion. Pontius Pilate was the governor of the province of Judea where Jerusalem was located. He had 6,000 soldiers at his disposal to ensure that he could maintain order over the 2.5 million Jewish people he had in his Jewish, under his jurisdiction. Pilate was not a popular leader among the people. In fact, Tacitus, Philo, and the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Pilate was harsh, cruel, prideful, greedy, and had a history of carrying out executions without trial or due process of the law. His policies, such as marching Roman soldiers through the city of Jerusalem, carrying banners, bearing the likeness of the emperor, and using temple funds to finance the building of an aqueduct, infuriated the people. But laying all that aside, when Caiaphas, the high priest, the chief priest, the elders and the scribes decided to kill Jesus. They needed Pilate's executive order to carry it out. Now, isn't it strange how ugliness works? Here are people who can't stand each other. Yet, when it comes down to carrying out a wicked scheme, they get together. Such being the case, this crew shows up at Pilate's doorsteps early one morning, demanding that Jesus be crucified. Luke verses 23, verse, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, lays out three accusations that they presented to Pilate against Jesus. First, they accused Jesus of encouraging the people not to pay taxes to Rome. Verse 2 states, we find this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. This was a false accusation. For in fact, Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, when some Pharisees and Herodians 
tried to trap Jesus concerning whether or not the people should pay taxes to Rome, Jesus asked them whose inscription is on a denarius, a Roman coin. When they replied Caesar's, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This charge was false in that Jesus not only told the people to pay their tithes, he also told them to pay their taxes. And verse 17 states, the people marveled at him. Second, they accused Jesus of treason. That is, they accused him of developing this elaborate scheme to overthrow the Roman government and then declare himself king in place of Caesar. In John 19 and 12, they attempted to threaten Pilate to action with these words. If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. This was a bribe, a threat, if there ever was one. Then they sought to solidify their charge in Luke 23 and 2, charging Jesus with saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, look hard at the wording of the text. Do you see the fallacy in the accusation that he himself is Christ, a king? Do you see the fallacy? The fallacy is this. Jesus never claimed to be a king, but he did claim to be the king. There is a big difference between being a king and being the king. For example, a king reigns only for a season, but the king reigns forever. A king has some power, but the king had all power. A king ruled a nation, but the king ruled the whole world. Do you see the difference? At the sound of the name of a king, some knees, namely the knees of those in, the, in their kingdom, would bow. But at the sound of the name of the king, at the sound of the name of the king, the king of kings, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should, that means willfully, give it up, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians 2.11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So says Romans 14 and 11. There is a huge difference between being a king and the king so that their accusation was false. Third, they accused Jesus of causing a riot all over the countryside. Now notice verse 5. They said, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee to this place. Well, he was preaching and he was teaching. There's no no doubt about that, but there's no evidence of rioting nor disorderly conduct on behalf of Jesus or his followers. All four gospel accounts of the trial uh, of trial of Jesus confirmed that Pilate saw through the religious leaders' false accusations against Jesus. He, 
put it like this. He, he, he peeped their whole card, like we used to say back in the day, and then he read them like a book, knowing full well that Jesus was innocent. The truth of the matter is Pilate even knew the motives behind their madness. Verse 27, 18 spells out the motive. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. That was the motive. Translated, they resented Jesus, they were jealous of Jesus, and they coveted Jesus' position. Why? Well, several reasons come to mind. First, they could not control Jesus. He feared no man, and he was in no one's hip pocket. Second, he never became a part of the system. He never became a part of the fraternity. He never became a part of the club. Thus, he had no obligations to them. He had no motivations by them, or he had no expectations of ever playing their game. Third, the people recognized that there was something different about Jesus, his preaching, and his teaching. Notice the words of Matthew 6, 28 and 29, quote, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished, they were amazed, they were mesmerized at his teaching, for watch this, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The authority of Jesus did not come from the halls of academia. Nor was it derived from his rabbinical ties or associations. Rather, the authority Jesus had to preach, teach, and do ministry came directly from God. That's what got the people excited. And that's what made the religious elitists furious at him. That's why they envied him. That's why they hated him. That's why they wanted to do away with him. And for Wherever Jesus showed up, genuine, authentic, life-changing ministry took place. No jive, no jazz, no magic, no hocus pocus. Just life-transforming ministry took place wherever Jesus showed up. The high priest, the chief priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians had been in town for decades. For the most part, just going through religious motions, managing traditions, maintaining the status quo, and living large. But when Jesus came to town, lives were transformed. Those who were stealing, like Matthew, the tax collector, stopped stealing. Those who were shacking up, living together without the benefit of marriage moved out like the woman of Samaria. Those who were committing adultery like the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery changed from her wicked ways and came over to the Lord's side. In other words, in, in modern day terminology, we would say that the players, the pimps, and the prostitutes were all turning their lives over to Jesus, and they were going out of business. 
Not only that, the lame were walking, the deaf were talking, blind were receiving the sight, and even Lazarus got up out of the grave. All this and more made folk mad who had credentials, who had money, who had influence and affluence, but had no power from on high. And so Pilate read those jokers like a book. He said, I know what you're upset about. Jesus has come to town and he's turning this thing upside down, right side up and all around. And y'all been here all of that time and nothing has happened to change the lives of people. And even while contemplating the innocence of Jesus, his wife sent him a word of confirmation. Matthew 27, 19 reveals while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, whom some believe, by the way, had become a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus, sent him this message, said, have nothing to do with this innocent man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him, Matthew 27 and 18. Now, at, at this point, Pilate is facing at least five serious dilemmas. First, if he lets Jesus go free, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other religious power brokers will report to Emperor Tiberius that Pilate allowed Jesus to go free, thus permitting the forbidden crime of treason to go unpunished. Second, if he allows Jesus to go free, he faced the possibility of a riot. A riot was bad news for him because it would send a message back to the emperor, his boss, that he was weak and ineffective, unable to command respect and control over the region for which he was assigned. Third, if he sanctioned the crucifixion of Jesus, he would lose what little credibility he had left in the eyes of the high priest and his followers who would view him as a sorry leader who would give in to their demands if enough pressure was applied. And fourth, he would never be able to look his wife in the eyes again without feelings of guilt and shame because he knew he was wrong and she knew he was wrong and she told him he was wrong. So how could he look into her eyes and say, baby, I love you. And she knows that he has made a serious mistake. And fifth, he would have a miserable time living with himself, knowing he unjustifiably condemn Jesus, an innocent man. Now, amid the chaos and confusion, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replied, it is as you say. Pilate marveled at the cool, calm, and collect composure of Jesus. He had obviously never witnessed anything like this before. Why? Because a person on trial for their lives had more than just five words to say. Any innocent person on trial for his or her life would be pressing the claim of their innocence. A person guilty on trial, guilty, who is on trial for his or her life, would either be lying, asking for mercy, or trying to find some loophole in the law so that they could be saved. But not Jesus. He was confident in who he was. 
He was concentrating on the mission and he was convinced that God had everything under control. We can learn some things from that, can't we? He was confident in who he was. He was concentrating on the mission, what he came to do. And he was convinced that no matter what they did or said, God had everything under his sovereign control that nothing would happen, could happen, that was outside of the divine scheme of God. Now, as this scenario winds to a rapid close, Pilate sees one last opportunity to set Jesus free. There was a tradition at the Passover celebration of letting a prisoner go free. That is, the governor would allow a prisoner of the people's choice to go free of whatever crime they had committed, and the governor would give them a pardon. Pilate saw this as an opportunity, so when the multitude asked him in verse 8 to do just as he had always done for them, that is, follow the tradition of releasing a prison. Now, he said in verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But the crowd, having been stirred up by the priest, worked up by the priest, shouted back, no, release unto us Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? He was a murderer and a robber. So says Matthew 15, 7, John 18 and 40. Surely, surely Pilate must have felt beyond a shadow of a doubt that the crowd would have desired to see Jesus go free over a notorious criminal. That's obviously what he's thinking. Surely, the crowd would rather see Jesus go free over a notorious criminal who was so vicious, so vile, so vindictive, so hateful, so harmful, so hideous, so dangerous, so diabolical, so destructive, that even while he was in prison, he had chains on. That shows you how bad Barabbas was. They locked this joker up, and while they had him locked up, they still didn't trust him. They had him chained. Verse 7 says, and there was one named Barabbas who was, the Bible says, chained with his fellow rebels. These were some dangerous folks. They had committed murder and rebellion. Now, Barabbas was such a notorious criminal. Verse 7 says that he was chained. Now, yet the crowd said, in a collective voice, get this now, we would rather have this cruel, this callous, this conniving crook walking in the neighborhood amongst our wives and our children rather than to see Jesus go free. Jesus had never killed anybody, had never, had never hurt anybody, and yet they said, we would rather have this type person around our playgrounds, around the temple, around our houses during the day and at night rather than Jesus. Pilate had to have been shocked 
at that response. And not only that, he had to be shocked because after all, men of those folk there were in the Palm Sunday parade. Many of them on Sunday, the previous Sunday, had been waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had been shouting, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, Mark 9 and 11. Now check this out. The disciples would have been there as well. And all of those people, Jesus had helped and healed many from the 5,000 folk that he had fed when they were hungry would have been there. Many of the folk he healed would have been there. Many of the folk he helped would have been there. Yet the overwhelming cry was, give us Barabbas. Bewildered, baffled, and flat out blown away. Pilate asked, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called who is called the Christ, Matthew 27, 22. What do you want me to do with Jesus, with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried again in verse 13, crucify him. Now in utter desperation, Pilate appeals to any ounce of religion, any degree of sanity, any amount of rationality, any portion of common decency, and any fraction of common sense and any amount of civility, he appealed to the people once again asking, what has he done? But they cried all the more, verse 15, crucify him. So Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd, release Barabbas to them, And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him that many had him whipped with a short handle, whipped with pieces of metal and rocks tied to the end of straps. They whipped him and then they crucified him. And my research shows that many people didn't even survive the scourge and the whipping was too much. Many of them died right there, but they whipped Jesus and then Pilate released him to be crucified. Now there are three lessons. Three lessons that are applicable to us today from this scenario. Lesson one, great evil happens when truth is left to popular opinion. Great evil happens when truth is left to popular opinion. Bad things happen when truth is left to popular opinion. Just because the deal on the table is popular with the crowd doesn't make it right. Just because those with the loudest voices, the deepest pockets, and the biggest sticks say jump does not mean that we should jump. We should only jump when what we are jumping at, on, or into is supported by the word of God, the will of God, and the way of God, that's the only time we should jump. 
We should be moved by the Holy Spirit and not by fashionable or trendy theology, ideology, terminology, or psychology. We are to be moved by, moved under the auspices of the Holy Spirit, not because of that which is fashionable, that which is trendy, because everybody else is doing it. Lesson two, great evils happen, bad things happen when truth is subject or relegated to feelings and emotions. Choosing to sacrifice the truth on the altar of feelings and emotions is a recipe for disaster. Now listen, feelings have their place. Emotions have their place. Tears have their place. But to sacrifice truth on the altar of feelings and emotions and tears is a recipe for disaster. We need to be on guard and refuse to allow folk to work us up emotionally to the point where we forfeit our ability to make wise choices. That's what the crowd did. They allowed the the, 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 the chief priest to work them up to the point where they lost their ability to make wise choices. Now, back in 1972, a singing group called The Main Ingredients recorded a popular hit tune entitled, Everybody Plays the Fool. Some of us heard that. Some, some of us back in the day danced to that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, the main everybody plays the fool. Sometimes there's no exception to the rule. Well, I beg to differ. There is an exception to the rule. There is an exception to the rule. If we know Jesus, if we follow Jesus, there is an exception to the rule. We don't have to do it. Now, there there was a there was a line in the song that illustrates my point. When he says, you know, everybody plays a fool, quote, how can you help it when the music starts to play? What are they talking about with the Shylights and the Delphonics and Martha Reeves and the Vandells and Smokey Robinson? When that music starts to play, how can you help it when the music starts to play? And your ability, get this now, to reason is swept away. Stop right there. We as people of God should never allow the music, the mood, or the moment to sweep away our God-given right and responsibility to do what God tells us to do in spite of of how we feel. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass, but nevertheless, not my will, 
Not my human feelings. Not my emotions. Not my will be done. He was shed and tit. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lesson three, great evil happens when Christians refuse to stand for right regardless of whom we must stand against. Bad things happen when we we refuse to stand for right regardless of whom we must stand against. No question Pilate has Caesar on his mind. If he fails at this junction, his career is over. If he flounders at this intersection, his power is dissolved. If he flunks out at this crossroad, his prestige dissipates and his prominence disappears. But that's not all. He has the crowd on his mind. What if they rebel and turn violent? What if his palace is overrun and he and his family are hurt or even killed? So what does he do? He gives up. He gives out. And he gives in to the demand of misguided, misinformed, mis- and a misled multitude. I've often heard it said that the only thing it takes for evil to prosper in the world is for good people to do nothing. Let me bottom line it. Let me bottom line it. Let me bottom line it. If it ain't right, if it ain't of God, Don't even go there. Regardless of who is for it, regardless of who is against you, if it ain't right, if it's not of God, you know it's not right, don't even go there. Don't even entertain the idea of going there, regardless of who opposes you, regardless of who stands against you. It's far better. To please God by doing what you know is right than to please people by doing what's wrong. So as I close, I just want to leave you with this. Do the right thing. God will see you through. Do the right thing. God will fight your battles. Do the right thing. God will take care. Yes, sir. God will take care of you. Him writer says, stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss from victory on to victory. His army shall he lead to every foe is vanquished. And Christ, Christ, Christ is Lord. 